Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and Michael Leader. Yes, unfortunately there's no James on the podcast this week, but we are joined by a special guest. We're delighted to be joined by Michael Leader. Mike, do you want to let the listeners know a little bit more about you and what we'll be discussing on today's podcast? Yeah, I'm Michael Leader. I'm uh, the editor of Film4.com and I run the social media over there as well. But uh, I'm a freelance writer of films and comics. And most recently, the comic I've been quite obsessed with is Hellboy. And I hadn't watched Guillermo del Toro's uh, first film adaptation of the comic book series. And I thought this was a great opportunity to do it and talk with some like-minded comic book film nerds about it. Yeah, but yeah, so today, before we discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news, we will launch into our spoiler-filled discussion of Guillermo del Toro's 2004 film, Hellboy. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven Mike to explain a comic book concept. As a movie fan, I I just don't understand. Seb, Mike, um, can you help me out here? We're going to get to it in a minute, but I've been watching some Supergirl on TV, and I was doing some googling around Supergirl and it turns out her name wasn't always Cara Zor-El or Cara Danvers. What is with Supergirl's name and also the fact that she is called Cara Danvers seems awfully close to a Marvel character who is going to be getting her own franchise soon. Yeah so well she's never been Cara Danvers in the comics. Um, Actually to be honest I was going to say this later but this would be a good opportunity to plug something that I've just launched which is uh, a new uh, blog on Tumblr where I'm going through and doing a write-up of every single Supergirl comic ever published, right from her very first appearance in Action Comics 252 in 1959. Um, and actually, like the first entry in that would slightly answer um, this question. Um, because, so I've, I've, I've written up on the first two issues so far, and I'm sort of you know, aiming to do kind of at least one a week. We'll see how far we get with it, because it will take a long time to go through 50 years' worth of comics. Um, but so, if you want to check that out, um, it's at it's called Cara Logical, um, like like chronological, but with Cara. That's a good. That's a good pun. Um, so it's uh, caralogical.tumblr.com, um, and there's a Twitter account at Caralogical, and we'll link to it on the Cinematic Universe Twitter account as well. 
Um, but basically, yeah, it's, so in her first appearance, she's a, she's just named as Kara. It wasn't until later Superman comics where the convent, the Kryptonian convention of um, a female Kryptonian surname being her father's name, like became established. So her father is Zor-El, so she is Kara Zor-El. When she first comes to Earth in the original comics, um, and Superman puts her in an orphanage, um, which is. To be honest, again, I go into this on the blog, but it's not really a very nice thing to do. It's like he's just met his his cousin, you know, only living other living Kryptonian family member um, after believing that he's been alone for 30-odd years, and he immediately sticks her in an orphanage because he's worried about his secret identity being exposed. But so she takes on um, her own secret identity by using her super hearing to listen to what Earth Girl's names are and comes up with the name Linda Lee. Um, uh, so okay. to begin with, Linda Lee was her <coughs> secret identity. Um, then basically after a while in the comics of her living in the orphanage, she gets adopted by a couple called the Danvers and so becomes Linda Danvers. Um, so there's, so her being named Danvers does predate the existence of Carol Danvers. Um, okay. But she's never been Kara Danvers in the comics because she's never used Kara as her secret identity name. Um, so it's like, as with Superman being Kal-El, her real name is Kara Zor-El, her alter ego is Linda Lee, then Linda Danvers. It just so happens that now that we have a TV show coming out two, yeah. three, <laughs> or however many years Marvel wants to push Captain Marvel back, that we now have a Kara Danvers on TV. I mean, I actually, I, I've kind of... I, I think there's no problem with her having Kara as her, like, Earth name because, you know, it's a it's a real name on Earth, you know, as far as I'm aware. I, I, does it predate her existence as a comic book character? Um, it's definitely a name that people have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although, how many of them are named after Supergirl? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if Starbuck from Batman... I Star don't think anyone's out there naming their... Children after Superman characters, Seb. That sounds no, insane. it would be an utterly <laughs> ridiculous thing for anyone to do. One of the problems with Supergirl is that she's been a difficult character to nail down any kind of one status quo for. She kind of bounced around a lot of different titles and a lot of different setups. And um, I mean, the the Linda Danvers identity is her kind of longest and most enduring identity. But then that character was killed off thirty years ago in Crisis on Infinite Earths, and since then. The name has been used sparingly, but has never kind of properly been her alter ego. Right. Um, there was a. I don't really want to get into the Peter David run where a girl called Linda Danvers ended up getting possessed by the spirit of a character that was kind of Supergirl, but not exactly. It's a whole thing. And then when when they actually did bring in a post-crisis version of Superman's cousin from Krypton, which they did surprisingly late, I don't think she ever used the name Linda Danvers. She briefly took on an alter ego later on, but it was because she got adopted by Lana Lang. She might have been Linda Lang, maybe. She might have still been Linda. But to be honest, having a secret identity is... uh, has not been a massively important part of Supergirl comics since the pre-crisis version died. So I, I like that in the TV show, you know, she has got a secret identity, but it's an identity that's quite close to what she is in, in real life. It's just one of the things I like about the show. She's not doing a Clark Kent. She's not pretending to be this, you know, um, sort of... I don't want to say ditzy, because she's not really ditzy, but you know what I mean? She's not pretending to be this kind of nice, bubbly, likeable girl. That's just what she's actually like. So the fact that she's using her real name 
um, albeit with with you know an assumed adoptive surname, I quite like. But it is a bit uncomfortably close to Carol Danvers, and you do wonder slightly if it's a spoiler tactic by <laughs> by DC and Warner's. Well, we'll use that as a seamless segue because we're going to move on to our comic book movie and TV news section now. And um, Mike and I can now join into the discussion because we are actually <laughs> going to talk about the the first couple of episodes of Supergirl, but I mean most specifically the the pilot that aired in the last couple of weeks and what we thought of it basically because there's not much news to talk about and uh, Supergirl I think is a, a pretty exciting uh, exciting property to discuss so um, Seb we've heard a little bit about what you thought about it uh, Mike what are your initial impressions of Supergirl? Well based on the pilot I'm, I'm on board uh, I don't think I really got as much uh, I don't think I got anything extra from the pilot that wasn't already in that sizzle reel that went around. That's uh, the yeah. six-minute cut down for advertisers. Yeah, yeah. yeah so <laughs> it's sort of like that six minutes stretched out to four to five minutes, choppily edited in places. Yeah, um, I would almost argue that the six-minute version is um, it, it's paced a little better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, and some, some of the bits that that land so well in in the the six-minute cut down, such as the the costume montage, yeah, so absolutely, cut so strangely, and then the stuff they add in, which are you know some quite fun things, like you've got um, is it, uh, David Harewood. Uh, really chewing some scenery. That was a nice surprise, as as well as uh, you know, cameos from Dean Kane and so on. But oh, really, Dean Kane. Yeah, we, we need to spare a moment of Dean Kane there, coming back to the fold after. In my God, head, God's not right dead now, and so on. Like, forget that Dean Kane is playing a different character. In my head, Supergirl right now exists in the Lois and Clark universe. Like, <laughs> over in Metropolis, they're doing all of those crazy hijinks and having a screwball rom com. Their version of Cat Grant isn't a million. You could see the version of Cat Grant from Lois and Clark turning into the character that, as played by Callista Flockhart. In which case, I'm happy that she has turned into that version of the character because <laughs> one of my least favourite things about Lois and Clark is Cat Grant. <laughs> oh, poor Tracy Scott. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, well, I, I don't know. I'm not sure there's much of a through line from their version of Jimmy to this version of Jimmy. <laughs> but that would I mean, that would be difficult. That would the, very, be the very fact that you can place it in that context, it, I, one of the things that I, I like um, about this, obviously you can't avoid the fact that there will be this connection to Superman and they have kind of laid on a bit thick the, the your cousin references throughout. But the thing that I like about it is I like imagining that it's in a setup where Superman's been around for quite a while. Yeah, it seems and, like it, doesn't it? You know, it's kind of similar to what we've talked about with the Batman versus Superman setup and what they're doing with Batman. And it's like you can imagine that a lot of Superman stories have happened with this version of Superman. And that's kind of part of the reason why we never need to go over and find out what's going on. It's like if you want to know what's going on with Superman in, in this universe, just pick up a random Superman comic and assume that it's happened in that timeline. Um, they're very off-handed about telling us that Jimmy knows that Clark is Superman. And again, that sort of implies that Superman's been around for a while, you know, long enough for Jimmy to have discovered that. Um, but it's just, you know, like, they have, they have a conversation in the second episode where... Um, you know, it just becomes clear, like, because she has she has a brief chat with him about secret identities, and and just mentions that Clark is Superman, and I've, oh. that's not really generally an established part. It is actually in the recent comics, but other than that, it's not usually established that Jimmy knows that Clark is Superman. So hmm. that's quite an interesting thing. I, think. I actually quite liked the the way that they were dealing with Superman because it would be so easy for a show like this to like the way that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. pussyfoots around the rest of the Marvel Universe mm. it would be so easy for this show to kind of go uh, yeah Supergirl and uh, yeah, 
God, she has to exist in the same universe as Superman, otherwise it doesn't make sense. But let's mention him once and never mention him again. And mm. I like that there is, like, there should be really a constant reference to the fact that this guy exists out there who's been doing it longer and is doing it better. And it actually well, really wor- it works really well for the idea of Kara being a hero who's learning to use her powers. Well, this is really something that, that, that I think they've deliberately drawn, again, from the very original, like, early Supergirl comics. Because when those comics were being published in the kind of late 50s, early 60s, um, Superman as a character was at a point where, and there are sort of there are partly like social reasons for this as well, and kind of wider contextual reasons. But basically, in those in the Superman comics of that era, Superman wasn't really allowed to do any wrong, you know, or kind of make mistakes, or you know, be fraught with kind of emotional problems or anything like that. Mm. Um, you know, Superman kind of had to be presented in a very idealistic way. And, you know, it's kind of always right. Sort of despite the fact that on a lot of covers of that period, you know, the, that period is where the famous super dickery <laughs> stuff comes from, you know, Superman just coming across as an almighty arsehole to his friends, <laughs> uh, as, as he does to Kara in the, in the Supergirl comics. But the, the reason, I think, why the Supergirl stories in action comics of the time did so well was, you know, they were being published in the same comics as Superman, but you would have these stories where Superman would, something would happen and then he'd win out and he'd always make the right decision. And then you would have a Supergirl story Story where a lot of the time she would bumble around a little bit because she was learning and she would kind of make mistakes and you know she was kind of growing and understanding her powers um, and the TV show has gone straight in for that with you know you know it's a more interesting kind of story to to read or to watch is is someone discovering how to be a hero rather than already being the perfect hero so I'm gonna throw out a prediction nice I think there's gonna be maybe one killer scene where like Superman does turn up and have a conversation with Kara at some point. And if this gets a second season, I think it might start with Superman having gone off Earth a la Superman mm. 2. If they do, I mean, this is basically... Again, maybe this just ties into my picturing Superman as being a bit older in this. Mm. It's basically going to be our last chance to get John Hamm as Superman, <gasps> so I really hope they do. God, they that, won't. That would be really don't, 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 don't get my hopes up. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Mike, do you want to talk about uh, your love for Melissa Benoist? She is just amazing. Melissa Benoist. I'd only seen her in a in a pretty unforgiving small role in Whiplash last year as the love interest. And... Um, you know, once you saw the picture of her in costume, I, you could just tell that she was going to be perfect in this role. And mm. the the pilot plays that out perfectly, the, the way that she goes between... As, as, as Seb was saying, the fact that she's a, a little bit gawky, but, that, but genuine. It's not an assumed character in the way that Clark Kent could be in some readings of Superman. And it's all there in the pilot. I, I'm completely on board with her. She's thoroughly charming, even though it does seem that she's existing as some of the detractors have said, in a, in a Devil Wears Prada world, um, I think she sells it. The moment that really nailed it, I mean, it was in the sizzle reel as well, and it was kind of the moment that really nailed it for me in the sizzle reel as well, was um, when she goes to stop the bank robbery and gets shot at and just kind of walks towards the bullets and smiles. Mm-hmm. And it's just that that moment for me was where the character just completely clicked and it was like, yeah, that's that's Supergirl. I mean, she, it is just it is impeccable casting. She's definitely the best thing about the show in terms of just how right they've got it straight away. Yeah, yeah. I've, um, I think that among the ensemble, I think it sounds like different characters are working for different people. I'm not sure Wynn is working for anyone yet. Her kind he's of just best too friend. similar to Cisco. Oh no, yeah, but uh, no, but, but not, not fun as yeah, Cisco. but not not funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Um, I I, re- I really liked their Jimmy Olsen. I really like Callista Flockhart as Cat Grant. I think she's. I think yeah. they they rein her back in a little bit in the second episode. And oh, that's good to hear. It, she is. Um, I mean, she, she. We know she's a good actress, and she could. My my just my hope is that Cat Grant never finds out that that Kara is Supergirl. Like mm. these these superhero shows have a way of kind of folding everyone into the mm. into the superfold eventually. Um, I, I like, yeah, is there Kat anyone is the in Flash there? who doesn't know his secret identity? <laughs> um, guys, what did you think of the um, the like villain setup, Mike? We see that Kara's mum, who's played by Laura Benanti, actually has um, an evil twin sister um, <laughs> who has made her way to Earth with lots of other kind of kryptonians and other aliens um mm-hmm. what did you think of the, the villain setup as is right now it, it, it's it's kind of very much a bit a twist at the end of the pilot really so do they develop that in the second episode yeah she's, well this is because mike hasn't seen the second one and I, yeah. I, I don't know if i want to say what it is that i quite like about it without okay learning it for my well <laughs> it's interesting that they're setting up this sort of dual theme of sisters um uh with, with you know Kara's relationship with her own sister, and now with the the auntie coming in. Mm. Um, although I'm, I will admit, it's a that that pilot was so jam packed with plot to begin with yeah. that that reveal at the end. I was watching it with my girlfriend, and um, we kind of looked at each other and was like, "Wait, wait, wait, wait a minute! Let's just yep. watch that, that that sequence again. That's the same actress, right?" Yeah, I went I went onto Google just to make sure. <laughs> um, speaking of speaking of going onto Google and and villains, um, if you haven't. Um, Please go and Google image Vartox, the villain from the first episode. Um, because actually in the comics he's not a villain. Um, like he's one of these characters who showed up and initially kind of fights Superman but then turns out to be a goodie because you know, he's fighting him over reasons of misunderstanding. Mm. Um, but in the comics um, he is basically based on Sean Connery in Zardoz. <laughs> That's why he's called oh, amazing. <laughs> Um And so just, just Google image him and just, just have a look at some pictures of Vartox. It's amazing that they chose him to be the first villain yeah. in the show. Um, um, I, I, I'm actually quite excited about the some of the potential future villains that the show has because, I, I mean, we are not excited about Wynn being named the same as some obscure DC villain. Uh, that's uh, that's not that interesting to they me. They have already announced casting for his father, so it looks like his father is going to be the toy man okay. rather than him. Okay. So, yeah, I, I don't fine. think there's the worry of, oh, is Wynn going to turn evil at some point? I think it's like it's Like dad, Caitlin so. on The Flash. Um, yeah. But I did like, uh, Mike, you won't have seen this, but briefly in the background of the second episode, we're introduced to uh, Peter Fashionelli's Maxwell Lord. So he's yeah. he's in the background there. Um, I think we're supposed to be guessing at David Harewood's intentions in a way that well, this is the in thing. the way like, we yeah, did. You, you know that there's going to be... You know that it, presumably he is going to turn bad at some point. I don't know. Um, I, th- I think, I think we're supposed to be guessing. I think we're supposed to be guessing which way he's going. Also, excitingly, the showrunners have said that their big bad that they're kind of building towards is Non, who I don't think, okay. from the research that I did, it wasn't a comic character, was just the character that uh, Jack O'Halloran played in the original yeah, he's, he has Superman films. He worked into the comics, yeah. but uh, he, wasn't, he didn't originate in the comics. Um, okay, well, um, I think we should move on now uh, to uh, probably briefly discussing uh, the trailer for Preacher that debuted last week. 
um, Seb, I, I know you're probably our resident preacher expert, so for that reason, I'm going to come to Mike first. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike, did you watch the preacher trailer, or do you have any pre-existing relationship with the property? And what did I, you think? I, well, I both watched and have pre-existing relationships. So, Excellent. Yeah, preacher was the first, alongside Sandman, was the first uh, long-form comic that I read to completion. However, unlike Sandman, Preacher is one that I haven't revisited. So it was something I definitely much read and enjoyed as a teenager, and the only things that stick with me were the things that I remember enjoying as a teenager. And because it is a series that um, is violent, foul-mouthed, nudity, and very wrong in some levels, um, I should really go back and revisit it before the series comes on, because um, watching that trailer, it wasn't it didn't seem as familiar to me as I hoped it would be. And it took me the whole trailer to realise that it was Joel Gilgan as Cassidy. <laughs> so, oh, I'd, I'd read all the all the speculation and news saying, Joel Gilgan, Joel Gilgan, Joel Gilgan, and I couldn't really remember who he was. And then suddenly, This Is England comes flashing back <laughs> to mind. It's like, oh, so he's going to be Cassidy. Interesting. So it seems that they're going in an interest, a different direction for that character who is so iconic in the comics. Um... Uh, but I guess we'll have to see. It's a trailer. I'm not really the best person at speculating from trailers, <laughs> which is not great as a film journalist. <laughs> Seb, what did you think of the of the first trailer? Well, I mean, I suppose there are kind of two ways I have to look at it, really, because of the fact that I've read the pilot script, so I know how things are going to play out in the pilot, and I know the ways in which it's going to differ from the comic, which is pretty significantly so i can look at it knowing what i know about it or i can look at it as someone who's a fan of preacher if i was just looking at it completely cold and had no idea what the show was going to be about um i'm a i am a big big fan of this comic like i'm i'm in the middle of a reread at the moment in preparation for the tv show it is one of those comics i just reread every you know year or two um it's it's not without its problems but for the most part it is one of the best ever long form stories in comics it's as simple as that basically Mm. if I was looking at it from the perspective of not knowing what I know about it I think I would be concerned that it seems to be taking place in in a very different setting from the comic kind of seems to mostly be in one location um you know um but I, I know from the script that these are things that are true of it, but that aren't necessarily problems. Because the thing about the script is it, it, it puts... And I, I know I've already talked about it in detail on, on the podcast and written an article about it, but just to kind of briefly summarise, um, it's a different setup. It brings characters in at an earlier stage than you might expect. It has pre-existing relationships between characters who in the comic you know, meet each other over the course of the comic, so you might not expect that. It's a different kind of setup in the pilot that I think is then going to take us to some of the stories from the comic. Like we I think we will get familiar stories and setups from the comic, but they're not there in the pilot. The pilot is is putting us in a quite different place. But stylistically and the tone of the way that the pilot is written, it really feels very faithful to what the comic was doing, just doing it in a different way. And what is that um, because I got the impression from this trailer and I think I said this on the mini side that I mean this aired during The Walking Dead, which makes sense if you're debuting a new show on AMC, you're going to want to show it to the biggest audience in TV, which is during The Walking Dead. Um and it seemed to me that it was kind of like selling this kind of hey, this isn't set in a world a million miles away from The Walking Dead, and look, it does seem pretty grim and relentless, but also it had a little bit more of a, a, a comedic tinge to it to, that to me said, 
Oh, Walking Dead with a bit of levity. That is oh, I mean, that is absolutely what I'd of... be keen on. Yeah, uh, Preacher is, um, in a lot of senses, very grim and very violent, but it, but has a lot of black humour in it as well. Like, a lot of horrible things happen to people, but they, they sometimes happen for deliberate comedic effect. Um, overall, you know, it is also fairly... It's got. I mean, it's got a lot of themes, and I can't sit here and go through all of what Preacher is about. But you know, it is predominantly um, about you know faith and religion and how um, that sort of drives people's lives and the things that they do to each other as a result of it. Um, it's also about you know loyalty and family and oh, all kinds of stuff, basically. <laughs> but just looking purely at how it looks like the show is going to do things, I'm not totally convinced by. Dominic Cooper and how he looks and how he'll be as Jesse. It's interesting, but Jesse, I think, is a difficult character to nail in a film or TV show. Like, for years, it's been a game to try and cast Preacher, and I don't think anyone has ever come up with a good suggestion for who could play Jesse, Um, which is ironic because he's a character that's just sort of... He's like an amalgamation of various, like, lead film actor tropes, but without being any one. Mike, do you have... Yeah, that that's, that, that's a challenge, Mike. <laughs> Perfect casting. Yeah, or, or, like, do you see enough in Dominic Cooper from what you know of him? My problem is that I don't... I can't remember the last time Dominic Cooper really impressed me. Devil's um, Double? <laughs> Devil's Double? Good in that? No, well, he was good. I mean, he's, he's good as supporting characters where he needs to be a bit of a tosser. He was very good in an education. Um, yes. That would have been a few years ago now. Um, and but doing his more, Howard Stark bit. Yeah, but then doing his actual Howard Stark bit, uh, he was he was just Dominic Cooper in, in the background, really. Um, <laughs> I, I, that's that's the probably the sticking point for me is that the same with Joe Gilgan as well. Um, the two actors that I recognise in in the cast. Um, in their American phases of their careers, haven't really been great. So Joe Gilgan, I'm thinking of... Um, actually, it wasn't an American film, was it? What's that film that's been on Film 4 a few times? Lockout. Uh, Lockout, yeah. I uh, think he's great in Lockout. But I don't think <laughs> Really he, hammy villain. He, but really hammy villain isn't really something that needs to be brought to the table for Cassidy. It needs to be it needs to be a bit more behind that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I, mean, I think in... I think in the trailer, I think he really sells the mm. version of Cassidy that they're going for. I, I'm really excited about his casting, and I do think he's going to be the best thing about the show. Yeah, I, I love Joe Gilgan. I'm just thinking back to his you think back to his performance in This Is England and Pride and Misfits. He has this just ridiculous, over the top exterior, but there really is like he he brings depth to characters that you wouldn't expect for characters who are as broad as he is on the surface. Mm. I, I think what they might lose from from this version of Cassidy is like in the comic he's kind of the thing about Cassidy is that you know he's lived for nearly a hundred years um you know he he's an a, a, he was an Irishman at, you know kind of around the turn of the century got turned into a vampire has then basically spent the rest of his life living in America living a very ragged drunken drug fueled existence for most of it um and I think what they seem to be losing is this sense of him as a kind of ragged old punk kind of figure like, you know, obviously he doesn't age at a normal rate, but kind of in the comic, you can picture him kind of maybe sort of early 30s, very kind of raggedy, you know, as I say, like looking like he's stepped kind of straight out of the late 1970s. In this, you know, obviously Gilgan is a bit younger and he kind of seems a bit more slick. And I think they're playing up more the kind of insane party animal crazed side of him. 
I think that can work. I think Gilgan's going to play it really well. And the moment that sells me is is when he speaks. And it's the fact that, you know, like in Preacher, like Garth Ennis is one of the few comics writers, maybe even if not the only comics writer, who actually writes phonetic accents really well. I mean, Joe, you've been reading some Chris Claremont comics, so you know what it's like when Chris Claremont writes dialogue. Yeah. Um, But Garth Ennis writes accents that when you read them in your head, they are convincing accents, because he's a great mimic, apparently. And he writes accents so well, and like just with a really well-observed, ear and Cassidy he really writes with this really strong phonetic Irish accent and one of the things is Cassidy says Jesus like spelt J-A-Y-S-I-S all the time and went so having Cassidy say Jesus in the trailer just completely like sold me I think Um, with that little laugh as well just like he's just a complete madman basically and I can see that really working I'll be interested to see how they play the side of Cassidy that means that Jesse becomes such good friends with him mm. because at the moment he seems a little bit too out there. I mean, it, there's not a lot to base it on. Yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued by Preacher. Okay. Um, the pilot script was really good. The, visually, I think the trailer is really interesting visually, if a little bit Walking Dead-ish. Excellent. Okay, well, um, that brings us to the end of our not-really-comic-but-movie-news section, but that's what we're calling it. Um, we'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Hellboy, but before we dive in, let's listen to the trailer for the movie. Welcome to the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defence. There are things that go bump in the night, Agent Myers. And we are the ones who bump back. Hellboy. Well, come on in. Meet the rest of the family. Abraham Sapien. Liz Sherman. It's a beautiful name. Don't worry, boy scout. She'll take care of you. These freaks. They give me the creeps. Really? Every time the media gets a look at him, they come running to me. I'm running out of life. If there's trouble, all us freaks have is each other. What the hell is that? Something big. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. Sixty years ago, they tried to destroy the world. They're back. Behind this door, ancient evil. Oh well, let me go in and say hi. Okay, so that was the trailer for Hellboy. Uh, we'll launch into our discussion of that movie now. Um, and um, I think, given the introduction that Mike gave us at the start of the podcast about reading a hell of a lot of Hellboy recently. <laughs> Mike, you're probably our our go-to here to tell us more about the character's background on the page and certainly in terms of at least the the setup or the status quo, how it differs to the version that the movie presents in the first act. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I guess some general (laughs) publication background is um, Hellboy uh, started publishing in the um, early 90s. Uh, Mike Mignola is the key creative force. He generally has a writing hand in every uh, manifestation of Hellboy and for a long stretch, at least before the film was made, was uh, was doing the art as well. Although as the universe expands into various spin-offs, he's been delegating to various artists and writers in the in, in the in the world he's created and it um, does bear mentioning that 
before this movie version, Del Toro collaborated with Mignola fairly... They had a fairly hands-on mm. kind of collaborative well, relationship. As anyone would know from following Guillermo del Toro on Twitter, and I strongly suggest they do because he's amazing. He's just a big well of positivity. He's a big comic book fan. Oh, and yeah. uh, by the sounds of it, he was a, a reader of Hellboy from the start and had always wanted to get his hands on that property to turn it into a film. And they collaborated on Blade 2, which I know you'll get to eventually. Um, he brought in Mike Mignola to do a bit of visual consulting and they went travelling around Prague together doing location scouts and they became uh, close friends and collaborators on that, dreaming up a Hellboy film. But it wasn't until Blade 2 was a financial success that Del Toro had the clout to get that project off the ground. Um, but when he did, uh, it was a, a close collaboration with Mignola um, bringing it to the screen. It's it's It's... Vaguely based on the first trade of Hellboy with a few other stories mixed in there. But what I find fascinating about it is seeing how um, it's two very different creative minds, both of which I admire and respect greatly, kind of colliding and making this very Hollywood version of a property that I love. Um, I guess a lot of the key differences with the comic um, are, well... There are a lot of them are structural and narrative. Um, the basic setup, the fact that he is this, um, you know, this this demon from another dimension who is uh, brought through a portal at the in the waning days of World War Two, um, shepherded by this uh, English professor, Professor Broom, uh, played by J- John Hurt in the movie, um, and, and brought through by Rasputin. Brought through by Rasputin as the plot um, details. Yes, so that all that is the same, and the BPRD the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defence, that's there as well. Some of the key differences, and uh, it kind of feeds into our discussion about alter egos and secret identities. In the comics, very quickly, in the 1950s, um, or the early 60s, they've just told that story in a spin-off. Hellboy's granted um, uh, honorary human citizenship, he, um, and he's definitely a public figure, whereas in the film, he's a, he's a myth, he's a conspiracy. Um, they detail that quite a lot in the opening credits. And that mm. brings attention to the film that isn't there in the comics. And actually a lot of the conflict in the film, be it romantic tension, father-son tension, inter-bureau tension, uh, is not there in the comics. Because Mike Mignola is, at least at this stage of Hellboy's history, much more interested in telling interesting stories brought from his wealth of interest in um, folklore and mythology and ghost and horror stories of the 19th century and before. Whereas I, f- I feel like Del Toro's version kind of is less interested in telling those stories and using the stories and the world that Mignola has created as a just a setting to put cool characters on the screen and watch them bounce off each other and kind of do a plot in the background. That sounds like Del Toro in general though, doesn't it? Yeah, and in in a way, I kind of wish that they could do a Hellboy three or a new Hellboy film because the the guy who made Crimson Peak, the Del Toro that made Crimson Peak, would make an amazing Hellboy movie. Whereas this is obviously um, Del Toro in his first phase of Hollywood filmmaking, where I if I've not read his draft of the screenplay, I think there are some changes between that and what was origin what was initially um, eventually filmed, but it, you can see them working this very weird concept and weird characters into a into a structure that would satisfy a Hollywood blockbuster um you know for example the you know the 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 all of those conflicts i mentioned um the villains and so on 
Whereas Hellboy, one thing to, to mention about Hellboy, um, even though um, there are some key storylines that run to multiple issues, by and large, this phase of the Hellboy um, comic was made up of short comics. They could be half an issue long, one issue, they could be a backup strip in Dark Horse Presents, because um, uh, Mike Mignola was just messing around with cool ideas and, co- and interesting stories. Mm. And that's why I like the comic so much, because um, it doesn't have to be slave to the conventions of a superhero comic. It could just be an interesting skit or, or, or just a, a short um, a short folklore tale. So, it's to, so then when it's brought to the screen, it's then moulded into this shape that I guess is fascinating as almost a period piece now because this is pre-MCU, it's 2004. Mm. Um, it, and I think it's probably just as... It's probably better to compare it to X-Men movies, I'd say, as we, as we go along. Guillermo del Soro would not like that, by the way. I'm sure he wouldn't. <laughs> he was very frustrated. He was like, oh, we had this movie ready to go in 1998 mm. and we just couldn't... Comic book movies were still a dirty word back then and Hollywood didn't want to make them. And then X-Men and Spider-Man were successful, which kind of allowed this movie to be made. But we could have done it first. <laughs> mm. I, it's just, um, there are so many aspects of it and some characters and so on are the themes of, you know, choices and there being, the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the sequence with Hellboy saying, you know, I can't do anything about this, uh, you know, uh, motioning to his face and his horns and stuff. It's mm. just so dials in with um, the way that Brian Singer read the, the Mutant yeah. franchise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Seb, what's your relationship with Hellboy? Because I know last week you said that Blade was, you know, a kind of property or a kind of world of comics that you never really had that much interest in, but you did have some affection for those, you know, like old horror comics. What was? Have you ever read any Hellboy, or has Hellboy ever been of any interest to you? <sighs> I haven't, and it is something that I do feel slightly ashamed of. And when you should Dark do. Horse, you, should do. <laughs> you don't read enough comics, Seb. No, I don't. <laughs> Pull your um, finger out. When Dark Horse recently finally came onto Comicsology and they did a massive sale um, of a book where you could get like a bunch of trades for about a fiver each. I mean, to be honest, the trades still aren't that expensive. I was having a look, and the, most of their trades are still about seven fifty. But they did a big sale, and I was going to pick up some stuff and didn't get around to grabbing the, the the two things that i meant to buy and then missed the deadline on were a couple of trades of hellboy so i could finally read it and the collections of the dark horse aliens comics mm. which are the ones that are set after aliens because they were before alien 3 was made and they've got an older newt as one of the lead characters and then they had to change her name when alien 3 came out mm. uh, but that's by the by yeah don't, i mean i've I'll talk about this again a bit later when we get to the recommendations, but I I don't know a lot of Dark Horse stuff. As I know some of it, but maybe not as well as I should do. And Hellboy's just... I think the thing about Hellboy is, you know, I obviously kind of only really sort of found out about it, you know, maybe kind of late 90s, early 2000s. And I think it's always been something that... kind of Probably like you are with comics as a whole coming into this podcast, there's so much of it that it's felt like quite an intimidating thing to get started with. And also, like nowadays, it is available in these kind of um, sequenced trades that kind of just collect everything chronologically. But for a while, it was really difficult to get a handle on because it was kind of published a bit all over the place. Like, you know, it's, it's now, I don't think it's ever been, has it, a continuous ongoing comic? No. It's been lots of miniseries or, as you say, you know, short stories in Dark Horse Presents and stuff like that. So unless you've been following it since it started, 
it's tricky to know where you should start. Now these trades are available and they're available digitally, so it's a lot easier to do so, and I really should. And I may well do, off the back of this podcast, at least read the first one. Mm. Uh, Seed of Destruction, I think, is the, the it, first yes, one. Yes, it is. And that's, that's, um, it's, got, uh, it's written by um, uh, your friend John Byrne. He comes in and write, he, he writes the first comic because Mike Mignola oh, really? wasn't confident enough um, as oh. a writer. See, that's quite interesting, because I mean, I, I do really like Mike Mignola um, and his style, and what I mainly know him from um, is sort of late 80s and early 90s work um, at DC. Um, he did some amazing covers um, on Batman. Um, mm. And actually, he did the covers on Death in the Family, Joe. I don't know if you, if you remember the covers of the individual issues of that at all. No. Um, oh, and actually, he, it's that. interesting you mentioned that he wrote with John Byrne, because... Um, John Byrne, he, again, the other thing I know him from was he drew a few issues of John Byrne's Superman run, including mm. a miniseries called World of Krypton, and then he did a couple of issues that had a storyline with Superman going back to Krypton before it was destroyed. Um, his work on that is fantastic. Like He's a great, great artist, he mm. really is, but I don't know what he's like as a writer because I've never read anything <laughs> written by him. But yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I've, I've always kind of had an admiration from a distance for mm. Hellboy, for kind of for what it is, you know, for Mignola's talent and for the fact that it's this thing that has run for, you know, 20 years and has been allowed to be its own thing and has never really, from what I gather, you know, been compromised by any commercial pressures or anything mm. like that. It's just... You know, there's a lot of comics out there, and it's just one that I've never got round to. Yeah, I must say that when I, I... I don't know what struck me a few months ago to, to start reading it, um, but when I did, I, I wanted to dig into it. It's surprising that you, I, I asked a few friends who read comics, I read a few websites, and that same uh, story comes around, like, oh, they know it exists, that it's very well-respected, Mike Mignola was great in the late 80s and early 90s, and it's all very intimidating. There's a review of the, one of the most recent trades on Comics Alliance, which just says, yeah, Hellboy's there, and we all know it's brilliant, but we've not read it for years. Um, yeah. But it's actually really easy to get into. once you. It, it has all these spin-off franchises and, and, and uh, standalone series and so on, but you can really, because of the nature of the storytelling, you can pick up pretty much any Hellboy trade and you'll be given a, delivered a really interesting little story. In fact, they've also just started a new series where they're telling Hellboy and the BPRD's story. So once once he becomes an active agent in the early 60s, they're doing these individual limited series, or early 50s, sorry. Um, and that's and, and the most recent issue of that is just two standalone stories in a one-shot, and you could pick that up and enjoy it. Um, but it's, it's, it, it's interesting how when the film was made really it was just Hellboy and there'd been I think five of the equivalent of five trades worth of stories so it was much more of a self-contained and smaller and mm. weirder thing it won a few Eisner awards by that point and was very well respected but it wasn't the behemoth that it is now okay so I'm really interested then given that I mean I'm said this is a completely different position for you you're on a podcast with someone who is coming knowing this source material very well and um trying to make an assessment on what they think of the movie what what do you guys what are your general thoughts are you are you both positive or conflicted about hellboy as a movie because i'm gonna say the first time i watched this i wasn't really a fan of all, fan of it at all then watched the sequel and went oh i really quite liked that maybe i didn't give the first one a proper chance um and and that that seems to be true. I think I still prefer the sequel, but um, I I really enjoyed this movie, and I think there's there's um, 
there's so much to like about the characters and, and the world building and just the del Toroisms of it. Um, so how do you two find it as a, as a, as a piece? I think, um, I think, um, Blade makes for a really interesting comparison, um, not just because of the, the connection with Del Toro, although that's that's certainly a part of it, um, because it's not an entirely dissimilar plot to Blade in terms of, you know, you've got this lead character who is kind of partly one thing and partly the other and who would be expected to be, you know, the, on, on the monster's side. And then you have a plot that involves some gobbledygook with summoning things from or forces from hell and the, the hero character, because he's of that origin, is in some way connected to the to the villain's plot. Um, but the huge difference between this and... So, like, plot-wise... I can't say I'm hugely interested in a lot that actually happens in the plot. It, yeah. It's just fairly... It's just that kind of plot over again, and oh, and this is going to happen, and then there's going to be a scene where they're trying to do their big ritual and, and this, that, and the other. Where it differs from Blade is that while I'm not really interested in the plot, there's there's so much fun in the character stuff uh, and moments and the dialogue that I, I enjoy it. Like it's, I, I don't love it unconditionally or anything like that but it's it's a, it's a reasonably enjoyable film to watch and it's the moments throughout that keep me interested in it uh, and again to make a comparison to blade um I, I like the central character so much and think that you know he, he he's a really enjoyable character to to spend the film with and and that's what kind of carries it through i think and what about you mike because you kind of talked about like the the interest that you had in the way that this comic in the way that mignola and del toro collaborated mm. to make this kind of hollywood version of the story but is it still enjoyable to you as someone who really knows the source material yeah i'll watch it and i, I enjoyed it i think that there are certain aspects of it they really nail this is really unique for me um because even though I'm, I'm a comics reader, I, I wouldn't say that I would watch comic book films in the way that Seven James do. I don't really have the sort of great investments in those stories or characters to inspire nerd rage, but this is actually <laughs> probably the first time I've ever really felt frustrated with um, creative choices that differ from the source material that I know and love. Uh, I'm sure we can get to some of those down. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...the line, but it's... I don't think it's... Um, while it's not the best adaptation of Hellboy and it's not the best Guillermo del Toro film, um, it's, I still find it fascinating to read as a critic and just see these... Because there are so many film directors who take on comic book projects and they say, oh, I'm a great fan of this, the material, and, oh, uh, you know, I've read these comics so much and it's going to be great to finally see it realised on screen, but this is the first time I really feel that Del Toro and Mignola um, is, is, a, is an example of a writer and a, and a director who have basically been coming from the same position. But you, And you can completely see the influences of the two in this final film, duking mm. it out in front of you. And that's, as, as a critic, just fascinating to see. I, m- I mentioned this on the um, before we started recording, but I listened to a bit of the um, of the Guillermo del Toro commentary track and uh, watched some of the special features on the Blu-ray, and Mignola was talking about watching a scene where Hellboy is duking it out with... Um, forgive me, I'm going to have to look at the name of what the villain is actually called. Uh, Cronin, the the Nazi assassin mm. of, the, of the three villains. And he was like, it was like watching Hellboy, who was my Hellboy, fighting Cronin, who wasn't my Cronin. He was Guillermo del Toro's Cronin. So it was like watching one of my characters fight with one of Guillermo's and I was just fully happy with both of them. Mm. Like I couldn't have been happier to see both of those like characters on the screen at the same time. Yeah, I but think... that's an example where Cronin in the comic is just a sort of background character who looks cool because he's wearing a gas mask, but the actual character is just a scientist who's, I think, is a bit of a germaphobe. Um, he's not the ninja clockwork Nazi that, that Del, Del Toro makes in, into, and that's one of the best things about the film. But yeah, that's something he's one of the things be, that you take yeah. away from the film, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, but that could that, that that that's almost something that seems so in keeping with the comic because um, although you know Del Toro is is he loves gizmos and gears and cogs and steampunk, <laughs> you know, so it's fully Del Toro there. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, well, with you saying all of that really makes me think that another quite strong comparison point for this film is probably Scott Pilgrim because yeah. that's another example where you know the creator of the comic did work closely with the production mm. and it was obvious you know that in so many ways Edgar Wright and Brian Lee O'Malley were on the same page um, they created something that in so many ways was really faithful in other ways made some slightly disappointing creative decisions to change things and yet also did add things that weren't in the comic that but that felt in keeping with the spirit of it. And so as we found out, added stuff to the comic as well. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, has, has, is there anything that, Mike, that's in this film that um, Mignola has actually taken himself and, and then used in the comic? Um, I don't really think there's that much. Um, that certain aspects, like, I, I think I read somewhere that um, 
they don't because of the CGI budget they don't show Hellboy having cloven hooves in the film and that's something always been something that Mignola Mignola's hilarious in interviews he will always be up front saying I can't draw cars um, so that's why I set my stuff always uh, in, in on a sort of on a sort of misty <laughs> misty countryside with a castle in the background because he can't draw cityscapes but I, th- I think the, the, the nature of I think the, the coat and the gun um, a lot of the iconography of, of Hellboy did kind of that was that was asserted in the film, and then that went back in the comics. But it's certainly nothing like, um, you know, as we were saying with Supergirl, characters created for Superman one and two. The movies came back into the comics. Um, it, it, it's um, well, for, for example, most of the new characters that were in the film died in the film. <laughs> John Myers certainly doesn't come back into the comic. No. Uh, we'll definitely get to him. We should probably start off with the actual film itself, though, with that kind of pre-title sequence, which is, which is, uh, Mike. I think what you were saying probably some of the more faithful stuff with the introduction of Hellboy coming to, coming to our world um, mm. as as a child, kind of being part of this like ritualistic thing of the Nazis trying to gain some occult powers. Yeah, um, and then Johann Schmidt gets the Tesseract. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Comic books love Nazis, right? They're a great go-to villain. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's it's the most faithful in the way it looks as well. The the cinematography in, in that sequence, the the light and shadow, and way of, you know the high contrast, where it almost looks black and white in places. It's just so um, very in keeping with that first um, first couple of issues of the comic. Um, the, the, there is one big change, which is in the comic, the um, the GIs and the Nazis aren't in the same place. Yeah. They, ide- they identify that there are multiple locations for this ritual, and Hellboy just happens to pop up in Scotland and not in wherever the Nazis were doing the ritual. Seem, seems like a smart decision to streamline that into one location for a movie. Yeah, just, it just means you can have an action sequence straight away. And there's that one guy who... I mean, because Mignola... Um, I don't. Really, I'm, I'm not really as uh, astute a comic book critic to be able to talk about art in that way. But they people say that he is like Jack Kirby to the max. Mm. Um, and there's that one GI character, like the sergeant, who has just he has like a Sergeant Rock face. He just <laughs> it, it's, it's 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 brilliant. He's the guy that that shoots Cronin when Cronin's about to stab um, young John Hurt. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and that guy just looks like he's just walked off a comic book page. <laughs> it's brilliant. And young John Hurt is fantastic. Um, I, I'm not sure who the actor is, but he. I, I'm like, he's yeah. Irish, apparently. Yeah, oh. I, I I was sold on him Kevin being Trainer. a young John Hurt. Um, and then and then so we meet we do meet Hellboy for the first time, and I think notable that in a film that is as often as possible relying on physical makeup and effects. Um, the the kind of baby Hellboy looked seemed to me to be a CG creation, but mm. just a, a really really cute one. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's, it's a, a great way to sell you on design. this like this monstrous creature, but being just basically essentially like a, a little cheeky monkey. You're <laughs> like okay, okay, yeah, I, that that's that's our hero. I I get that. And the kind the, of the big ballsy pose that he pulls when he's posing with <laughs> the with the grunts at the at the end for the picture, it, I think it just does. A, 
in so little screen time does such a good job of establishing some of the key components of who this character is going to be next time you meet him. Mm. The problem uh, is it, it then that that the fact that it does that so well actually then gives the film a massive problem for me. It, because it, yeah, that that scene perfectly sets up who Hellboy is, where he comes from, why he's a demon who is good, and why you know why he's going to be on their side, and all of that is perfectly established by that scene. Hmm. Um, so why does the film then bother to need to give us a way in, like you know it, it then reintroduces us to Hellboy and hmm. to the BPRD. But it doesn't need to because our, the opening sequence has already drawn us in to the weirdness and, and to who Hellboy is. We don't need an audience identification character to come along and then encounter Hellboy. And then when you have the reveal of you know Hellboy as an adult, which is quite a fun reveal, mm. but it comes along quite surprisingly far into the film. And it's like we've already seen him as a baby. It, <laughs> it's not a surprise that he exists. So why do we need to be taken to that point and have our hand held up to that i mean essentially we're already in you're talking about the john myers character rupert evans plays john myers who is this um pure of heart um agent who is recruited to to join the bprd which basically at that point is hellboy and aid sapien because liz isn't around and then Mm. it's just like a load of agents and yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. The thinking back to this movie, when I, when I was talking about, you know, having have not been really sold in it the first time, I wasn't... I, I, I was kind of like, ah, dumb Nazi stuff and that annoying, bland guy who's always there, who has no need to be yeah. there. And I, I do get what you mean. I think there are two reasons why he's there. One is this idea that, yes, he is kind of like an audience surrogate, introduced you to this world... I mean, it kind of, it kind of reminds me of... Uh, the, the world of this actually kind of reminds me of Men in Black a little bit. Um, mm. and... Or R.I.P.D. when it's in its bad phases. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and John Myers being this agent introduced this world and kind of being, like, wide-eyed and, like... But obviously, first of all, Rupert Evans does not have Will Smith-level charisma. And you're right, we don't really need him for that in that regard. Now, the second thing that they're setting up of why he's there is that John Hurt's um, Professor Broom is dying Mm. and he has been this father to Hellboy who, although he looks like Ron Perlman in red makeup, um, is actually just like mentally kind of a teenager. He's kind of like 15, Mm. 16, kind of like an unruly adolescent and that he still needs this family around him after he's gone. And he he selects uh, John Myers as this kind of like successor almost which Mm. again i don't really feel like you need because liz is there in the film and i i think it would have been it would have been a more interesting part for selma blair it would have been a more interesting narrative if john hurt had have gone okay um i need to establish this family around hellboy after i'm gone and oh hey look the person who he's got this really strong relationship with is liz and maybe he doesn't need a father anymore. Maybe what he needs is a partner. Well, that's something that's interesting, and it's one thing that I think Mignola and Del Toro differed on because it's different in the film and the book. This this idea that he's a permanent adolescent or he's mentally in his early twenties. I think the line is in the. It's it, it almost has the same 
um, end point as a character point, but they come at it from different directions. Mignola says that he's been there, done that, seen it all. That's why he just goes up and punches somebody. Whereas uh, Del Toro thinks that he's this sort of adolescent who, hothead who will go and just you know, punch somebody as opposed to thinking it through. Mm. Um, and that's that informs what I think is something that's bad. You know, that, that's a bit of a uh, unnecessary core of the film: the, the the relationship with Liz and the the, the sort of existential quandaries all stem from him being a permanent adolescent, which I don't think really works. And I agree with the, with you about John Myers. He's not necessary. And it seems that he's there at the beginning and they're holding back Hellboy's reveal mm. through the newspaper flashes and um, we've got to say something something about uh, seeing Jeffrey Tambor on a talk show couch. Which oh, is God, yeah. Have loved. Hey, now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, so they hold him back because they're setting up this world in which um, I think the, the tagline for the second film is, believe it or not, he's the good guy, which is mm. never a conflict in the comics and I don't think really needs to be because he's so patently a good guy and he's not even that horrific a creation hmm. so that's why but, you but need to hold him back a bit again like you you would at least it could at least be a mystery for the audience you know like is this guy like really the hero kind of thing if we hadn't had that scene at the beginning that fully mm. establishes it's just and I, like i wouldn't want to lose that scene at the beginning because i say i think what that scene does is it effectively pulls you in straight away um, and it establishes um, Hellboy and Broom as the lead characters mm. and then Myers comes in and it's like he's playing a role that in any other film would make him the lead character the hero, mm. but he's not the, the film shoots he's, to he's his a distraction, isn't as he? he's the hero, but he's not the hero Yeah, and there are some it, contrived ways that they make him necessary to the plot in the, in the, in the third yeah, act yeah, I mean it's not like he does nothing it's not like he has no effect on the film but none of what he does has to be him like you know, mm. he he has a positive effect on the outcome, but it doesn't give the character a reason to be there. Anything he does could be done by another character. Anything well, he does could be done by Jeffrey Tambor, quite frankly. Well, everything he does, the, the two points that I'm, I, I'd, I'd refer to um, are the the sort of comp, the the the, um, the the worst point parts in the in in this between the second and third act, where um, Liz Sherman, who all the way through had been saying that she'd been learning to control her powers, re- asks him to slap her in the face in order to unlock her powers. And that that just didn't seem. She'd been saying all the way through that she'd been learning to control it, and then likewise, he's just hanging around at the end when Hellboy's having his crisis of faith whether to fulfil his destiny or not, and he has to he has to shout, "Hey, look at the crucifix! Remember who you are!" When these things could be personal conflicts mm. resolved personally, as opposed to needing to just have this guy, which I, I find it funny. Rupert Evans, who unfortunately hasn't had much of a career afterwards. Uh, I, I've read somewhere that it was meant to be Jason Schwartzman in that role, oh, which would be a very different Jeremy film. Renner as well. Yeah, oh Renner though. <laughs> I'm not sure Renner would have been great, but Schwartzman would have brought Schwartzman something would have been strange. Interested. Yeah, I'm. I, I find myself not hating him at any point, which, or at least on this watch, I didn't hate him. I just kind of thought. Yeah, he's there, and he's obviously Del Toro has identified him as this necessary evil. So I'm just gonna have to deal with him. What he did function as for me was just a frustration by his presence. Like I wanted to see Hellboy and Broom sharing more scenes. I wanted to see Hellboy and Liz Sherman mm. going through more of the beats of their relationship rather than being two parts of a love triangle that never really exists. And yeah, I 
I wanted to see more bantering with Jeffrey Tambor, and I wanted to see more Abe Sapien just flat out. Like yeah. he's great in the first half just, of the movie, and then he, yeah, he's, he's not yeah. there for the final mission, and you're like, ah, yeah. oh, he's, he's such a good character. So mm. like this dual performance of Doug Jones doing the 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 physical Abe Sapien and spending the hours in the chair, and then uh, Niles Crane doing the voice, <laughs> David Hyde Pierce doing the voice, um, and. It, yeah, I, and I just kind of kept kept thinking because that for me is what really works about this movie is that when the characters are bouncing off each other, so many of them are so well sketched and this is a two hour long movie. You feel like there should be room in there to spend more time really diving deep on those characters. Mm. So I, I think that Liz Sherman gets the short shrift there because she in the in the comics and I I I don't want to sound like a you know a comics purist she is No that's that's what we're here for. She's not <laughs> she's not the 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 sort of broken woman that she is in the film. She's she she has lingering trauma and is battling with this power and how to control it. Um in fact there are points where she goes off to various like um uh uh, monk retreats around the world to to learn how to control it and uh, and She's um, rogue, meditate and right? She 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 is rogue, really. That, that, her 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 arc where she's just moping around and going, "Oh, my powers," is just so X Men, mm. um, and in a way that isn't necessary because she's been an agent in a bureau <laughs> for twenty years or something, fifteen years by this point, and you don't get the sense of that at all that she's an, an, an agent in this this real um, you know, this, this actual force for adventure and daring do. Mm. She's just moping do... around. I do quite like her kind of detached, broken weirdness. Like I, mm-hmm. she's got you know she. I mean, the, in terms of the performance, she's got this just sort of disconnect from everything, and it's like it's the kind of thing that I think could come off as just an actor being completely disinterested and flat. But I think I think I think Summer Blair just about pulls it off enough. The I, I like is that she doesn't Blair. go anywhere from that. Mm. I think when when you first meet her, her being like that is is really good. And you know the sort of the the resolution with with Hellboy is okay. But I you know as you say, like you don't get enough of a sense of her having been actually an agent with the BPRD. And there feels like there is a plot beat missing with her properly rediscovering herself. Yeah, yeah. From the point she is at the start of the film. But I, I like her performance in how she is at the start of the film. I just think she needs to do more in the second half of it than she gets to. But it's a it's a very I mean is she I was going to I know she's not literally the only female character in the film because there is um, she, yeah. um Rasputin's mate. But, um yeah, like you know, it it's other than that it's a very male film. It's yeah. It really is so. and the, uh, the the romantic um relationship between her and Hellboy is another thing that's in the movies and not the comics. Mm. So it just feels yeah, like she is a hockey puck in in between Myers and and Hellboy for the majority of the film, and and it's mm. something that that that, that I, I think reduces that character down to um, an, an element of other characters' realizations. Although it does give me give the film one of my favorite sequences, which is Hellboy spying on them with the kid and the cookies. Which yeah, I, that's true. I, that's I like that's really fun. Really fun. That's, that, that's pure Perlman, and also it's pure Del Toro because Del Toro is, always makes room for a really good scene with kids in his movies, mm. whether they're scary or funny. Mm. But it brings me back to, I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, I, I know you said it was different in the comics and you weren't entirely sold on it, but I did actually really like the idea of Hellboy as this kind of ne'er-do-well teenager who's kind mm. of rebelling a bit from his father and 
I then really liked when Liz turns up that Selma Blair was playing her as a sullen teenager. And obviously, mm. if this love story is not there in the comics and Liz isn't, um, you know, it's, it feels like a completely different character, it may, you, maybe it's understandable that it turns you off more. But I just, I, I really like the idea of these two kind of like, two kind of misfit kids who kind of had found each other but hadn't quite worked things out because their hormones were everywhere and that they were just so emotionally immature and the scene where Hellboy shows up with the beers and meets her in mm. the in the park and then I, I I thought Selma Blair had an interesting take on that character and you're right I think there is a there's a beat missing in the Hellboy Liz relationship and there's a beat missing in the Liz learns to embrace her powers arc um that that does undermine that character slightly but I really liked the idea of her and I liked this. I was, again, because I do this every time I watch an old film, going back and reading Roger Ebert's review and um, Roger Ebert talking about this perfect moment, which Roger Ebert is the last shot of the movie. You like, there's a big spoiler here, but uh, the, the, <laughs> the moment when they kiss at the end and he's fireproof and she's, you know, she turns to flame and that how that you realize how perfectly matched they are. Um, I did get that sense going through the the whole movie, and I, mm. yeah, I just feel like it. Like I say, in both in both respects of that character, she's slightly let down by just uh, Maya's getting scenes that she should have had. I think. Yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Mm. I, I I completely get behind a story like that. There is an element of me. I think it was it James who just rejected the um, Hulk and uh, Black Widow relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, there's yeah. an element of that in me here. But if it was a bit better formed, a bit better fleshed out, maybe um, I would have got behind it more. Because yeah, the, the story you just told there, Joe, would have been a, made a, an amazing movie. And this, and I, I feel like it's so close in so many regards. Like I feel there is one scene missing between John Hurt and Ron Perlman. Mm. Um, just yeah, it, it, and like I say, there is a second half of the movie that is missing Abe Sapien. On on the relationship between Broom and Hellboy, there is, I think, one beautiful economic moment that just in one moment tells you everything about their relationship knowing already as you do that you know broom discovered him and and adopted him and stuff then the first time you see them interact in the present day um when uh broom turns up and um hellboy goes father and hides his cigarette behind his back (laughs) and it's it's like all the kind of cockiness of hellboy and the fact that he's this you know gun-toting um smoking guy Mm. and then his dad turns up and he hides a cigarette from him it's just such it just really neatly encapsulates like the history of their relationship oh hellboy spends so much time brooding doesn't he i'd like to see more of it but (laughs) yeah brooding hellboy brooding over liz brooding over his dad being mad at him and all that kind of stuff i I really lo- liked all that kind of stuff, and then the contrast of when you send him out into the field to fight these yeah. mythological <laughs> creatures, and also I did like just the dichotomy of like, oh, here are these supernatural creatures, demons from this realm, and this thing from there, and and Hellboy just going, yeah, I'm going to address that with my brawn. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's just he, he basically doesn't. I, I don't think he outthinks anyone at any point. Like he's just like, how can I destroy this disgusting creature that I'm going up against? Almost every time. Yeah, it's something that 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 feeds back into the comics as well. Because uh, generally, this this might seem a bit reductive, and maybe Hellboy purists will, you know, they could they can send me 
tweets if they want. But um, a lot of Hellboy stories I've read will be an in, a really interesting tribute to Gothic literature. Uh, um, you know, somebody being possessed, or there'll be like a, some ghosts or demons or whatever, and then Hellboy will turn up and punch them, or Hellboy yeah. will turn up <laughs> and then they'll jump out of a window and crash through a few floors of a building, and he'll he'll say that's it for you and punch them. I'll go boom and punch them. I think he does do that in the film. The second fight sequence in the subway station really captures that for me, where he's just he's just he's just punching this guy, and then they're they're completely demolishing the the surroundings around them, and it's kind of a stroke of luck in the end that there's a subway train going going past that 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 yeah. that, that slams into that version of Sam Ale. Should we should we address the plot because I think it's going to be a kind of a similar conversation we had to last week with Blade, which is that. Yes, there is some stuff going on in the background here, but I, I found it confusing a lot of the time and just flat out unengaging because the film the film almost seems like like you're talking about that scene where Blade, uh, where Hellboy's on the rooftop throwing the rock at Myers and and all the stuff that goes on in between the fights with the demons and then Broom dying and them going off to Moscow. It's almost entirely unrelated. Um, and it just feels like we have to keep, we have to keep going back to this stuff with Rasputin and and uh, Cronin and Ilsa and I just I just never really cared. I think it might have been easier to be invested in if if I didn't think that H.P. Lovecraft was one of the most boring things. <laughs> like, just this, just all this stuff with Lovecraftian demons and stuff. I just oh don't care. <laughs> I quite I do quite like the idea of mixing Rasputin with Nazis. Mm. Um, you know, having Rasputin be someone who was basically brought up again and and allied with the Nazis. Um, you know, and 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 he's quite a good choice for a villain. But yeah, all the stuff just with the I don't even really know what the plot was in terms of what they were trying to achieve and what they were trying to summon. Um, it was really just an excuse to give Hellboy some monsters to fight. Mm. Or rather, one monster to fight over and over again. <laughs> Mike, I wonder what you think about it from from two perspectives. One being that you know how it translates from the comic, because I assume that this is drawing on an actual arc from the comic. But also going back to what you mentioned earlier about the, the themes of choice. I mean, the movie opens with um, a, a labyrinth uh, for the title sequence, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously something Del Toro would uh, very explicitly go back to um, for his for his very next film. Um, but that that's a, that seems like something that Del Toro is constantly interested in. And while it, while the plot I didn't find that interesting, I wondered what you thought about that whole idea of you know Hellboy having to make this choice for himself. Well, that's definitely a theme. It, it's from the beginning, the opening monologue. That's John Hurt saying, "What makes a man? Is it his origins?" Blah blah blah. Mm. And there is that core um, nature nurture aspect to the Hellboy character, uh, which. To the comics' credit, it gets it out of the way pretty quickly, um, and only then, as it goes on, mentions it every now and then. Which is that um, that he is, you know, his massive red right hand is the key to this portal that's going to bring the apocalypse. Mm. 
to, to bear, pretty much. That's what it is in, in short term. And that's what he's doing at the end. Rasputin has come back and there's this humongous floating uh, Lovecraftian demon in space that's going to come through a portal. Um, it's called the uh, Ogdru Jihad or whatever it is. Uh, that's the aspects of Hellboy that interests me least. Um, it's I, I'm more of a fan of the sort of the gothic literature aspects than the Lovecraftian aspects. Mm. But that element of choice is there. Um, and although it's kind of... It's not really a choice, is it? Because they, they, they sort of... Uh, it, it's it's the, the way they weigh it is that do you want to fulfil your destiny and save your girlfriend or do you want to not fulfil your destiny and save your girlfriend is, is, is what they did in... The, that was the choice he had in the end. Yeah. It, it, it's not really a very compelling um, character uh, conflict, really. And, and finds a way to save the world and save the girl there's the, there's, a, there's a sequence in the comic where he's given that pretty much that decision it's either we will kill you or you've got to do this and he says I'll do neither and just like breaks the horns off his head and you know goes his own way and that says something about the character yeah. that he does not play by other people's rules hmm. um, whereas in this one they just turn it into a bit too much of a hero's um, you know the, 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 the hero's decision at the end of, a, uh, at the end of any adventure um, it's not really the other side isn't played up enough. It's not like he's curious about this world that has been hidden from him. Yeah. This, this side of his character that's been hidden from him. Um, so as a, as, a, as, a, as a plot on that level, I think that it's not a very compelling one. And that that theme of choice, the fact that it's got the closing and opening monologues about it, like I knew a man once who knew, you know, said he made his own choices and the choices make the man, I don't think that they're, they're, they're very good. <laughs> There's a very good shape of the film at all. I mean, it's unde- it's undeniably there, and it's obviously something that Del Toro is going for. But mm. you can tell the stuff that works better in the film, which is this kind of how Hellboy is relating to all the people around him, is mm. is so clearly the stuff that is more interesting. And I wonder whether Del Toro found more interesting as he was progressing through it. Yeah, and the stuff that that, that uh, I know that the, the the high plot the the, the the Lovecraftian plot stuff is is less interesting uh, to you, Seb. But I, I think what is interesting to me is the stuff that happens before those sequences. Like it happens in the um, in the museum, the art gallery, when Abe Sapiens wandering around trying to figure out what's going on, and then it happens in the graveyard before they go into Rasputin's tomb. Um, the the investigation stuff, <sighs> yeah, I th- I find much better, much more interesting, and there's more, there's a little bit more of that, especially in the BPRD comics. And, I mean, I guess what Del Toro brings to that is this incredible visual eye and mm. knack for character creation because, I mean, uh, Hellboy looks fantastic. Like, uh, just that for a for a physical creation, I mean, and this was done with the Rick Baker workshop, he just mm. looks... I, 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 it, it's so easy to think I'm watching, you know, like I'm watching a guy in makeup here. But Ron Perlman is superbly cast like no one else could do this character it... although does anyone else think that as Hellboy he looks more like Ted Danson <laughs> yes that's definitely that is definitely true um, but yeah the, the, the design work there is phenomenal and the fact that they create that with visual effects and they do the same thing with Abe and Abe especially when he's out of the tank and walking around looks mm. great Abe is really well realised I mean I, I think Abe despite the fact that he looks weirder you think less that's a guy in makeup about Abe than you than, than you do about Hellboy. I think mm-hmm. Abe is just is he's just there. 
Like he's, he 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 feels real. Mm. I think is the thing. And then and then someone like Cronin, when you see him out of his gas mask and all that kind of stuff, that looks great. Yeah, yeah, so freaky. That's like that. That's the moment where I was like. What certificates this film again? <laughs> well, that's mm-hmm. freaky, but you combine that with the fact that his blood has turned to dust and that's what seeps yeah. out of him, and he's got that whole clockwork motif. Um, mm, and then, great and yeah, the, the demons that they're they're fighting with, there's just... I mean, it's it's almost easy to say just like, this is what you get from a Del Toro film. So, I mean, we shouldn't really be surprised, but just constantly. And I, I was almost frustrated that we kept having to see Hellboy fight the same kind of demons because mm. I wanted to see more of them. And even it looks incredibly fake, but Grigori, the the skeleton that Hellboy carries around during yeah. that last investigative thing, is just hilarious. So funny. That bit. Oh. <laughs> voiced, voiced by Del Toro as well. Oh really? <laughs> A lot That's of the little voices in the background are done by Del Toro. Yeah. But that, that that sequence is a specific reference to what is a lot of people's favourite Hellboy story where he is given a, a corpse and he's and he's told by these local um, sort of ghosty demon types, you've got to go and bury this corpse somewhere, and they're going around uh, around around the houses looking for a good burial place, whilst whilst the the, the corpse is giving them sass. That's that? wonderful. I almost replaced Myers with Grigori for the whole film, and I would be so much more positive on this whole on this whole endeavour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's one artifact though that I saw yesterday when I rewatched it that he, I can't remember what sequence is, but he's he's crushing something in his right hand and it's obviously CGI. And I was like, oh, that's just that just ever so slightly cheapens it. But I guess it was 2004. So yeah, and and Liz's Liz's flames are obviously very obviously CGI. But I really liked the kind of the way that he took the blue flame and the orange flame and separated them out from each other. Um, mm. I thought that that just it, it looked it didn't look real, but it it had. It had something different about it that I really appreciated. Yeah, I don't want to seem like I'm coming off as negative um, when I com- compare it to the comics and so on. Um, but I, I, one thing that I love that isn't really in the comics is Jeffrey Tambor's character Manning. He oh, is in that. He is yeah. there. He is the um, he is the bureaucrat. But mm. he's, that realization of the character is so funny, and it's so rare to see Jeffrey Tambor in a film. Um, in, in Particularly a film like this, it does a really yeah. good job with those kind of those edge characters because I really mm. liked Agent Clay, who, in a couple of short <laughs> scenes, just we're talking about his hair transplant, made such an impression, and I was I was genuinely really sad when he died, um, yeah. and I thought that that relationship that kind of that compounded with then the death of Broom a couple of scenes later. I just mm. um, I had such empathy for for Hellboy um, and. Yeah, seeing him as this kind of broken outsider who could never really fit in and kept having these horrible things happen to him and finding it so difficult to connect with people and that that also brought into this kind of yearning that he had for Liz. Mm. Um, all of that kind of stuff in, in the background behind the plot was the, the stuff that kept really, really, really working for me. And I think... Yeah, this this film is. I think it's it's a film of almosts, and it's almost really, really fantastic. It's almost up mm. there with the the best comic book movies that have ever been made. But it's just I th- I th- it's just always just just out of reach. There, are, I mean, I I think one thing that I would say about it though is that it it does pretty much always feel the intentions are good. Like, yeah. you know, some, sometimes you you watch a film and you know, and it particularly. Uh, particularly when it's when it's like I mean the way I it's like the way I talked about um, David Goya on on the Blade episode and it's like you know there are things that I've disliked so heavily by David Goya that when I see something 
like in in a film like Blade, I think, oh God, you know, it's it's him. He doesn't really get it, uh, and that can sometimes be unfair. But at the same time, with a film like this, you you just feel like you can see what they're trying to do, and some things don't quite come off, and some things are compromised, but. It just it feels like it's got good intentions behind it, and maybe just a part of that is is, is liking Guillermo del Toro so much. And you know, again, as I talked about last time, I'm I'm not really a horror fan, so a lot of del Toro stuff I don't know that well. But what I know of his films and what I know of him, um, you know, P- Pacific Rim is very similar. Pacific Rim is such a likable film, yeah. um, and just doesn't feel cynical in any way. And and this is the same. It's like, um, you know. Yeah, it's not everything comes off, but it's just you know what they're trying to yeah, do. Yeah, there's enough good there that yeah. you're willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I could put this film on mute and just watch it all day and look at I mean, I watched this special feature on the DVD which was just Hellboy's lighting test and shooting um Ron Pillman in the makeup from all these different angles to see which which direction and which colour of light would make the red look the best and would show off his scar and would make the blood on his face look right and I just sat there and watched the whole thing transfixed it's um visually and and I like like I say you almost take it for granted with um del Toro like even the backgrounds of scenes and the the kinds of rooms that he decides to shoot his his film in you know the fact that this takes place in lots of underground kind of crypts and sewers mm. and um train lines but then the rooms that it takes place in above ground are museums and um the the whole bprd place feeling like I this loved, old um, like cool library i really liked the design of um Cronin's little lair as well, mm, like yeah. with 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 the jaggedy like corridor to get through. Like the implication being that you know it's all right for him because it doesn't hurt him, but would hurt other people. And then this you know his ornate record player and, <laughs> and yeah. stuff. You know, and it was really yeah. really stylish. Yeah, yeah. I, I made a list uh, of little gizmos that were obviously Del Toro's creations that were just so delightful in little moments, like the mechanism used to feed the rotten eggs to Ape Sapien. And, yes, um, yeah. the, the the scanner at the gate of the BPRD office that kind of it, it looks like a really old um, intercom that. It, pops down it's the eye scanner and it's all the little sound effects he's obviously obsessed over mm. and that's what i love about del toro's movies at least his mainstream movies like crimson peak and pacific rim he just has his obsessions and he wants to communicate them to you yeah. and you can re- you really get that enthusiasm in there okay well i think we're probably gonna have to uh, move on to the recommendation section now but just as a just as a final final touch on this movie i mean we've praised Guillermo del toro a lot but guys how good is ron perlman I think yeah, it's, it's really easy to take for granted. I think that's why we haven't talked about him much because, you know, you just accept straight away. He's is is just a perfect piece of casting, and he does everything he needs. To I would liken him to Daniel Day Lewis in Lincoln. You don't even Those think chops. about the performance. <laughs> yeah, and the mutton chops. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he... yeah, just just spot on. Yeah. Spot on. I'd, I'd say you know up there with with the best, most perfect comic book castings. I'd say. Hmm. And it it also reminds me of like when um, Robert Rodriguez talks about Danny Trejo in Machete, in Machete and getting to mm. finally give this guy who is always around and always doing great things mm. to, to make him the lead in this enormous movie and to, to give him a signature role. Mm. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I think we probably all agree. I really hope that he gets to do it one more time before he gets too old. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Um, okay guys, do you want to give me your comic book recommendations based on Hellboy? 
Okay, so um, I know you're a completist, Joe, so I'm really sorry to be recommending the third trade in the series. Oh, no! <laughs> but I, I feel that the first two trades, um, they tell quite cohesive um, arc stories, and you've, and you've seen most of that, I'd say. You've been, you've, you've been introduced to the character, you know from what, our conversation how it differs. So the third volume, I'd say, is where it really gets going. It's where a lot of the stories that people say are their favourite Hellboy stories are in there. Um, it's called uh, The Chain Coffin and Others. Uh, in particular, the first story, what we were just talking about with the corpse that influenced that sequence in the film. That's the beginning story in this one. And um, as I've been saying all the way through the podcast, um, Hellboy's great when it only is as, the stories are as long as they need to be. And that's a mixture of lengths of stories. Yeah. Some of them are a couple of issues long. It also has the first story in there um, that Mike Mignola wrote himself. Um, so... Yeah. It's it's got a lot in there. It's got a nice Christmas story. Um, it's also got my favourite one in there, um, which is as I said, the corpse and the wolves of Saint August, which is the one I just said uh, was the first one he wrote. So I'd recommend the Chain Coffin and others, the third volume. Excellent. Uh, good. I'm looking forward to reading some Hellboy. Um, Seb, I, I presume this is not Hellboy. What are you recommending for <laughs> no. me? Well, it's it's not Hellboy because I can't recommend a Hellboy comic. But you know, this is supposed to be partly about broadening your horizons. So I'm going to recommend another Dark Horse comic, and I don't think it's a million miles away in terms of being um, like sort of some of the tropes of, of superhero comics, but with a um, like a supernatural bent and lots of weirdness. <laughs> mm. Um, it's the first volume, there are only two volumes so far, um, of a series called The Umbrella Academy. Um, it's written by Gerard Way, the singer out of My Chemical Romance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's a really good comics writer. He actually he used to work in comics before he was in a band. He worked for DC. 9-11 happened and he decided to quit comics and form a band. I think instead. I read one of his comics in Spider-Verse, actually. Oh, he did do, yeah. He, he His Spider-Verse was really good, actually, Really creepy well. one, yeah. 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 Um, he's very heavily Grant Morrison influenced, um, and he's just very good at chucking loads and loads of ridiculous ideas at the page. Um, so Umbrella Academy, I won't say too much about it, kind of plot wise. It's it's just it's about um, seven um, strange children who are all born simultaneously who get adopted by a kind of a figure not unlike John Hurt's character um, in this, but a bit more malevolent, okay. um, and who become a superhero team. Uh, I say malevolence, just he's a bit odd, basically. Um, but I can't even begin to describe kind of the plot and stuff. It's just a ridiculous, over-the-top, weird um, story. And But I think it shares some things in common with Hellboy. And actually, its artist is um, Gabriel Barr, who is an amazing mm. Brazilian artist, who has actually drawn, I believe, some of the BPRD yep. spin-off series. So it has got a connection. Um, and it, I like in, the visual style is quite similar to Hellboy. Um, so it, it's it's quite a lot to take in. It's like a six-issue miniseries, um, and there's a lot packed into it. Yeah. But um, I think you'll enjoy it. It's crazy, but I think you'll enjoy it. Excellent. Um, okay, we'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch. Yeah, so uh, this week, um, it's very simple. I'd like you to pitch me your idea for a Hellboy spin-off. And um, Mike, I'll come to you first. I'll say my Hellboy spin-off would be an anthology movie. Um, so that we can showcase some of these great short stories oh. and we can get away with a lot of the maybe the issues we had with the feature-length film. And you can bring in other stylists as well as Del Toro to put their spin on this great character. Excellent. Um, Seb, what have you got for me? Tom Manning, bureaucrat. <laughs> just, just, just an entire film with Jeffrey Tambor's character as, as the lead yeah. character doing all of his bureaucratic nonsense at, at the BPRD. All, all the clean-up stuff that he has to deal with afterwards. Him dealing with that and being annoyed about it in a Jeffrey Tambor kind of way. 
Amazing. Um, oh, I, I really like both of those. Um, I actually came up with a pitch myself this week. Um, I want, I just, because I love Abe Sapien so much, I didn't get a mm. chance to say quite how much I love Abe Sapien. Uh, like when he's cowering, terrified, hiding from those demons after he gets out of the sewers is one of my favourite parts of the movie. I just, I'd quite like Abe Sapien to move to Seattle and move into an aquarium with his brother. Yeah. <laughs> well, couldn't we have Mike's anthology idea and one of the segments is about Abe Sapien in Seattle oh. and one of the segments is about Tom Manning bureaucrat? Yeah, we're all winners today, guys. <laughs> we are all winners today. That is a fantastic, fantastic idea. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we have a three-way split for the for the victory and let's make it four-way and throw james in as well a five-way let's throw you in as well the listeners because you're the real heroes here but that is it for this week's show if you are enjoying the show then please do subscribe on itunes stitcher player fm or your podcast app of choice and if you've already subscribed then please leave us a rating or review and we'll give you a shout out on a future show you can find more episodes of cinematic universe on cinematicuniverse.libson.com or as we're a Film Divider podcast at filmdivider.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. See you next week. Bye. Bye. I always wondered why nobody did it before me. I mean, all those comic books, movies, TV shows? You think that one eccentric loner would have made himself a costume? I mean, is everyday life really so exciting? Are schools and offices so thrilling that I'm the only one who fantasised about this? Come on, be honest with yourself. At some point in our lives, we all want to be a superhero. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Kick-Ass. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.